the word of God from Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 through 20. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, As a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no edict or or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles, so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said. Has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Thank you, Max, for reading that for us. That was the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As prey in the pit with predators, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord Jesus, you calmed storms and stilled seas with a word. So we pray that in these brief moments, that you would allow us to breathe free from anxiety, to listen free from distraction, to hear free from fear, and to follow you into true freedom as you spoke so long ago. And allow us to hear in the quietness of this moment the echo, peace be still. 
And we pray this, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. It was a particularly distressing nature video. I was in high school at the time when it came out. A pride of lions had selected a young water buffalo, pursued it, and caught it. A few yards away, the entire buffalo herd stood stamping and bellowing their protest, but the lions were prepared to eat dinner, and the buffaloes were powerless against the lions. The prey is often powerless before the predator. Predators and pits cover the pages of Scripture. The creation account is barely finished before we are introduced to the very first predator. He's called the serpent, an embodiment of evil, and he's preying on mankind to turn the affections of mankind from God to ourselves. And his success as a predator changed the nature of nature itself so that animals were easily then grouped into predator and prey. And so predators appear all over Scripture. One of the leaders of Israel before they had a king was named Samson, and we're told in Judges 4 that Samson killed a young lion. In 1 Kings 13, a prophet of God is attacked by a lion and killed. Young David, long before he became king, had apparently killed killed multiple lions in his role as a shepherd, according to 1 Samuel 17. So then you come to the Psalms, and the psalmists describe their enemies in terms of predators surrounding and chasing and trapping and snaring. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the lion in particular prowling, growling, roaring, devouring, mauling, chasing, tearing flesh. So we shouldn't be surprised to read Peter's admonition, even though we often ignore it. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. But it's not just pit, uh, predators that appear throughout Scripture. Pits are everywhere in the Bible as well. Young Joseph is thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers before being sold into slavery. There were instructions in the law of Moses about what to do if your animal fell into a neighbor's pit and died. One of David's mighty men killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day, which also happens to be a great book title by someone who took that verse out of context. In a pit with a lion on a snowy day. David's rebellious son Absalom trying to take the kingdom from David is killed and his body is thrown into a pit and rocks are piled on top of it. And so the pit in scripture becomes a metaphor, a kind of metaphor for a very dark and dangerous place in life, parallel to death itself, in which the pitted one seeks deliverance from God alone. Jonah praises God for delivering him from the pit, which was, in his case, certain death by drowning. And the pit also becomes a symbol of just punishment upon the enemies of God. There's an expectation growing in the Old Testament that the enemies of God who dig pits for the people of God will themselves be thrown into the pit that they have dug. 
In our text this morning, we have these two realities coming together in a fearsome couple. Predators in a pit. Lions in a den. And these lions are waiting for dinner. And dinner happens to have a name. Daniel. We dealt at length with verses 1 through 10 last week. This week we'll review those briefly and look at the story through four different signposts. First, the predators. Second, the pit. Third, the prey. And fourth, the power. First, the predators. The lions are not actually the main characters in this story. Nor are they the main predators. But before we get to who is, let's talk about the king. Last week I said that Darius the Mede, or Darius, depending on how you want to pronounce his name, introduced to us in Daniel 5.31, I said that he was the same as King Cyrus. This is important because some try to point to the names Darius and Cyrus as inconsistencies and errors in the book of Daniel. Look down at verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, without getting into technicalities, the Aramaic word translated and between the names could also be translated even or namely. In that case, it would be like me saying, I am the husband of Lynn Wallace's daughter, namely Elizabeth. Lynn Wallace's daughter and Elizabeth are the same person. So Darius would be the name or title of the king in the Medan culture of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Cyrus would be the name of the same person from the Persian culture perspective of the Medo-Persian Empire. So that is one way to harmonize an apparent discrepancy. And there are at least two more ways these discrepancies could be harmonized. Potential explanations for objections. We won't go into those right now, but I bring these up to encourage you. Whenever you read of or hear of supposed discrepancies or errors in the Bible, do your research or ask for help. Don't just take it at face value. There are no stupid questions sincerely asked. Every objection, every objection that has been raised to the absolute truthfulness of the Bible, no matter how strong it may be, has at least one and often more than one reasonable explanation that satisfies the reasonable objector. This is yet one more reason for us to be willing to doubt our doubts about the truthfulness of God's word. So, back to the text. Darius, namely Cyrus the Persian, seems to be a king with both unlimited power and unlimited freedom. He can do and say whatever he wants and it will stand. For effective governing, Darius decides he's going to divide the kingdom into 120 different districts. He then puts over each of those districts a governor. So 120 governors who are themselves under the authority of three individuals. One of those three individuals happens to be our friend Daniel. The governing structure works incredibly well. 
mainly due to Daniel. The text says that he distinguishes himself above all the other high officials and the satraps, or the governors. He's described in four ways, in verses 1 through 10. He's described as having an excellent spirit, as being faithful, being without public error or fault, and finally, without any grounds for appropriate complaint. These are four incredible descriptions. Let's not move on too quickly. Sometimes it may be difficult for us to see how what we do here on Sundays translates into our Monday through Saturday work. A ministry called Made to Flourish that helps Christians connect their faith to everyday life describes this as the Sunday to Monday gap. But notice that the same Daniel whom we see faithfully worshiping God throughout this book is faithfully and ethically executing his duties with integrity. The two are not disconnected. They are vitally connected. Even as we saw last week, genuine spirituality is cultivated in private and then must express itself in public. What a witness in any culture for the people of God if this could be said of us. Friends, if God would be so delighted to work among and within, within us to the same degree of integrity through decades of following him, can you imagine what sort of witness would that be within the businesses and the companies and the shops and the neighborhoods and the homes of Chattanooga, of Red Bank, of East Brainerd, of Signal Mountain, Lookout Mountain, and St. Elmo. In Daniel's case, such integrity was appreciated by his king. And so Darius made plans to promote Daniel over the whole kingdom. Prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire, you might say. But guess what? There's office politics even in the kingdom where the king has absolute power and freedom. There are predators who want to see Daniel humiliated. And around the water cooler, the other two senior officials and the 120 satraps conspire to remove Daniel. But they have a problem. Darius likes Daniel. So look at verse 5. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. I'm struck by two realities in that verse. First, what a testimony to the grace of God at work in Daniel's life. We will certainly never be free of sin on this side of eternity. And don't believe anybody who tells you you can be. There will always be some way that our sin nature is expressing itself until God eradicates that sin nature at our final resurrection. But may we so cultivate a genuine spirituality privately and express it publicly such that no charge of genuine wrongdoing could ever stick to us could ever be made against us. 
those who are jealous of Daniel know that they will never get to him unless they get to him by going at him from the law of God. Second, I'm also struck by the fact that all of these men know whom Daniel serves. He serves a God different than the gods they serve. I wonder, can that be said of each of us? Do those we come in contact with have sufficient proof to conclude that we don't worship the same gods they worship? We don't give our lives to the same priorities and values that they give their lives to. That we don't bow to the world's idols of materialism and money and affluence and power and absolute autonomy and unlimited self-expression. And that we don't worship them either in a secular context or in a religious context. Because each of those gods can be worshipped in this room just as easily as outside of this room. So these 122 men persuade Darius to make a decree that no one should petition any god or man except Darius for 30 days. Now, this may have been a deification of Darius, placing Darius on the level of a god, or it may have been placing Darius as the only appropriate mediator between gods and man. Either way, the situation is both familiar and unfamiliar, both similar and different to Daniel 3. Back in Daniel 3, Daniel's three friends were being coerced to offer false worship to King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. Here, Daniel is being coerced to withhold true worship from the one true God. Back in Daniel 3, those who turn in Daniel's three friends are said to literally, quote, chew the pieces of these three men. Our English translation says maliciously accuse, but the underlying language says to chew the pieces. These men are pictured as predators, even as they undermine the people of God. And here in chapter 6, a whole new group of predators are active. Well, King Darius agrees. He thinks it's a great plan. He's going to exercise his power and freedom, and so the predators wait, and Daniel acts. Look at verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. In your mind's eye, can you see the predators high-fiving each other on the way to the palace after the corner spy has come back with the news? Yes! He fell right into our trap. He ignored the command. He prayed. We've got him. We've got him. First, the predators. Second, the prey. Prey as in P-R-E. E-Y. Look at verse 12. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. 
Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as the law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable or irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king. And the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. And so the predators pounce. But notice, it's not just Daniel they've caught. They've caught Darius as well. He may be on the throne, but he's caught in a pit of his own making as well. Ironically, these predators have postured themselves as if they are looking out for Darius's interests. But if they really were, they wouldn't have worked against him and behind his back to catch Daniel, right? And now Darius is caught in their trap. In his own freedom and power, he signed a law by which he himself is now bound. His freedom isn't as unlimited as it appeared to be. Every human being, even despotic kings, are under authority. And as we individually buy the culture's creed of absolute human autonomy, we are submitting to the authority of the culture in doing so. Mankind will never be out from under authority. We're creatures. We were designed to be under authority. And our wisdom is limited, so choosing ourselves as our own authority is incredibly unwise. How can we be sure that we will make the best decisions with the best goals in mind? Well, we can't be sure, and we won't make the best decisions with the best goals in mind. We're not omniscient. So the question becomes, what sort of authority, what sort, what kind what character of authority do you want to serve? Do you want to serve a cold and calculating authority that will capture you with lies of freedom and power? Lies that tell you you need just a little bit more to be happy and free? A little better paycheck, a little bit more stuff, a little more clout or power, a little more recognition or applause, a little more adventure, just one more high, just a little more pleasure. That's all you need. It's within your reach. Just keep pressing. Until we are enslaved by our own desires. The authority to which you bind yourself will either free you in joyful service or enslave you to toilsome bondage. There are no in-between options. For some in this room, you've been captured by a cultural Christianity. An outward form of Christianity with no inner power. You've embraced Jesus. Well, at least Jesus is good for Sundays. But he's not your Lord and Sovereign or your well from which you draw satisfaction Monday through Saturday. For you, the gospel has been gutted to just another form of human autonomy at work. 
I'll add Jesus in here, but he doesn't need to be sovereign over the rest of my life. Like, I've got that taken care of. But I'll show up on Sundays. He can be Lord there. If this is the case, then, friends, you are actually trusting yourself and your wisdom more than Jesus. And cultural Christianity has a stranglehold on the South, and specifically our region, Chattanooga. And so Jesus calls us to repent. But friend, if you follow Jesus, you are among the most truly free human beings on earth, no matter what human despot sits on the throne. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, Galatians 5.1, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You have been freed to follow not the dictates of sin and your flesh and the cultural dictates under which all humanity is enslaved. You have been freed, freed by the Spirit of God to serve God joyfully and without fear. But Darius knows no such freedom. His power and supposed freedom has led him to fear and bondage, and now he is one of the prey caught in his own pit. But there is, of course, an additional prey in this text. Verse 14. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. I skipped verse 15. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And as they close the door and lock the pit, the king says to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. Now there's some debate about whether this was intended to be an execution or what was known as an ordeal. An ordeal was an official way to deal with a question of guilt. There is an ordeal actually built into the Mosaic law in Numbers 4. If there is a question about whether or not a woman had committed adultery, God designed a test by which the outcome would absolve her of the charge or implicate her. Tremper Longman helps us here. The theology behind an ordeal is that God, who knows the heart in a way that human judges do not, will see the verdict through. He will make clear whether one is guilty or innocent. Is Daniel really unfaithful to Darius? Are his actions worthy of death? The human predators have all but guaranteed that the lion predators will make it clear that yes, Daniel is guilty. The prey in the pit is worthy of death. Look at verse 17. A stone was brought, 
and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. The predators, the prey, third, the pit. The pit may well have been Daniel's tomb. A stone is placed over the entrance. It's sealed by the king's decree. So low in his tomb he lay, Daniel the Jewish man. And pacing in the room he waited, Darius the king. Verse 19. After a long night, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Darius's question gets to the heart of the central question and theme of the entire book of Daniel. Is God able to rescue those who worship and serve him? Is he able to rescue them from human predators who prey on them? Remember, there's been enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent since the fall in Genesis 3. Those who reject God are knowingly or unknowingly submitting themselves to the rule of Satan, the roaring lion. Scripture makes that very clear. And our enemy, the adversary, Satan wants to devour those who worship God and he works in human history to bring about his own purposes. We don't like to think about this, do we? We don't like to wrestle with that reality. It's not comfortable. We don't want to think about Satan like a roaring lion walking about wanting to devour. We want security and stability and some respect in our world, but we have an enemy that will not allow us that rest and that security. And guess what? In the very next chapter, Daniel 7 and beyond, we're going to come face to face with fearsome beasts who want to devour the people of God. And the question is, is our God, whom we serve, able to rescue? Or is he just another power at work in the world full of powers? Can the God who claims that salvation belongs to him alone, can he actually deliver on that promise? Well, let's ask Daniel. Daniel, Servant of the living God, is your God, whom you serve, able to rescue you from those who prey upon you? Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was 
overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. The predators, the prey, the pit, and finally the power. The power of God. Is God able to deliver his people as prey from the predators and the pit? Yes, he is more than able. His ability speaks of his power. He can shut the mouths of lions. Now, why did God deliver Daniel? Daniel says, for I was found innocent before him. Though he broke man's law, he had obeyed God's law and given him proper worship. For he trusted in his God, the text says. And before we start to come up with all sorts of cutesy reasons as to why Daniel survived a night in a pit with the predators, like, oh, I don't know, maybe Daniel had spies that drugged the lions. Or maybe the lions just weren't hungry. Maybe they'd eaten like a really big meal, you know, at, I don't know, Steak and Shake or something the night before, and they just weren't hungry from their previous gorging. Well, verse 24 won't allow us to get there. The king then gave the command, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. The words maliciously accused, those are the same words found in chapter 3, verse 8. Literally, it means to eat the pieces of. Those who tried to eat the pieces of the faithful God followers in chapter 3 are confounded by three men walking out of what should have been their fiery tomb. And here, these predatory men and their families who would eat the pieces of Daniel find themselves being eaten in pieces by the predatory lions. The predators have become the prey. And so for the fourth time in this book, in the mouth of yet another pagan king, we have an incredible declaration of praise to God. Look at verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth. May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion will have no end. He rescues and he delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And what about Daniel? So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Why would anyone want to serve another king? Why would we want our longings to be met by anything other than this God, this powerful God who endures forever, who rescues unequivocally, and who always delivers his people? 
Back in high school, I continued watching that video as the young lion stood over the young calf. And it sure seemed like the story was over. But then the unexpected happened. The water buffalo seemed to organize. And they began to charge and attack and intimidate the lion. Until at the very end, you see the calf spring up, trot away, and rejoin his family. And the predators are left hungry, shamed, and skulking away. So let's summarize Daniel 6. The predators try to capture the prey in a sealed pit. The prey is vindicated and delivered. The predators become the prey, and the power of God is celebrated. Let me ask you, does that summary sound vaguely familiar? Does it remind you of any other storylines in the Bible? Repeatedly through the Holy Spirit, or rather through the pen of Daniel, the Holy Spirit is reminding us that no matter the circumstances, God is sovereign. No matter how unlikely the odds, the faithful people of God are on the right side of history. Because they trust in God. And this same storyline is going to cultivate some 500 years after this event when the perfectly innocent prey, Jesus Christ, is delivered by the ultimate predator, Satan, the roaring lion, to the pit of death. And he is sealed by the decree of a king in a tomb. The climactic seed of the woman is bitten by the seed of the serpent. And lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Vainly they watched his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they sealed the dead, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep its prey. He tore the bars away. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. What happened on Easter Sunday? The prey walked out of his sealed pit, secured the doom of the ultimate predator, and the deliverance of all who trust him. And every Sunday, we celebrate the power of God over the predators of this world through the resurrection of Jesus. And Daniel's resurrection from certain death points to Jesus' resurrection from actual death, which guarantees, believer, catch this, it guarantees your own victory over death. Because Jesus will vindicate you by your resurrection. And friends, this theme of resurrection will now appear repeatedly through the rest of the end of the book of Daniel to remind the people of God when they find themselves in the pit, when they are at the mercy of predators in the form of God-hating governments or individuals, they need not fear. 
One way or another, they will be vindicated. They will be delivered. God has promised it. The predators will become the prey, and the prey will become victorious and walk out of our graves. Why? Because the Lamb has overcome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are reminded this this morning of your power and your glory, your majesty, your sovereignty. And Father, while we cannot claim innocence, perfect innocence, we trust in the one who himself was perfectly innocent, who never broke any of your laws, publicly or privately, yet who was given given over to death, the death that we deserve, and then delivered to life, life that you now bestow upon all who trust in him alone. Father, we will most likely never face an actual lion's den with hungry lions waiting to devour us. But Father, we do actually live in a world where our enemy, the roaring lion, walks about seeking to devour us. So Father, we claim and profess our trust in you as one who is able to deliver. And Father, we long for the day when Christ will return when all the sons and daughters of God will be raised and vindicated before the watching world, that we are your children and that salvation and deliverance belongs to you alone. And Father, until that day, keep us faithful in our neighborhoods, in our businesses, in our homes. Keep us walking with integrity. Help us to strive to bless the culture in which you've placed us. Help us reject worldly idols and ways of securing power and means of affluence and authority. And help us simply to follow Jesus, the Lamb who overcame. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.